I'm Elizabeth Chopin, Editor-in-Chief of Design Anthology UK, and in this episode of the Design Dialogues, I'm talking with Sophie Ashby, founder of Studio Ashby, a London-based interior design practice known for a distinctive combination of color, pattern, shape, and putting artwork at the heart of every project. being here Sophie so good to see you again I think the last time we met was in 2015 when you had just launched Studio Ashby yeah and um here we are (laughs) these years later and you've got a team of how many now we're actually we've grown a little bit we're actually about 18 19 people now really yes and you're on all the important top 100 lists now (laughs) (laughs) well I'm on one of the important (laughs) top 100 lists (laughs) you have come quite a long way in a short period of time And I just wanted to maybe start at the beginning Mm -hmm. about when that creative spark first happened for you, you know, before you started. Yeah. So I was one of those kind of annoying people who knew what they wanted to do from quite a young age. I think I was about 16, 17 when I decided to be an interior designer or discovered what that was and found it to be this like perfect blend of all the things I was interested in, like property and home and art and creativity, but also kind of business. So it was like wrapped everything I was interested in into one neat little career path. So I was able to kind of use my summers and stuff usefully and try and do internships and get work experience and stuff like that. And yeah, I just was always very creative at school. You know, I was that kid in the art block the whole time. And for a long time, wanted to be an artist as well. But I thought that that all sounded a bit too challenging and penniless for <laughs> for a really long time. Did you come from a creative family? Uh, yeah, my mum's very creative, actually. She went to university when she was about 50 Amazing. for the first time and did a fine arts degree and is a sculptor and makes lots of things. So I think she came to it later on in life, but she's very creative. Well, I feel a really strong connection to your work because we featured a Studio Ashby project in the very first issue of Design Anthology UK in 2018. It was the Burlington Gate apartment. Yes. What drew me to it was that, like many of your projects, you created a world of contrasts where the eye could never get bored, but equally it doesn't jar in any way. I think a lot of that is because the spaces that you make are anchored on a piece of artwork. And I know that's one of the studio mantras to sort of start with the art. Mm. So I wonder what makes an artwork meaningful enough to be the starting point? And where do you find your pieces? Do you commission them? What's the process? Yes, good question. It's basically just super personal, isn't it? I think art speaks to you. It tends to need to have something kind of going on if it's going to be the main focal point of a room. I love abstract art, but I couldn't have something at the moment to my taste anyway, is is to not have the main focus of the room in terms of the art be just too simple. I like there to be a drawer or a focus or a center of the painting. Often that comes through a figure or a story. It can still be abstract in style, but it's so personal. And then, of course, that's what I think. And then we've got what our clients think and what our clients have as well. So I suppose it's probably a different process with private clients too. you know, spec developments and show flats. Exactly. Totally different. And quite often they come with their own collection or, you know, very clear 
personal preferences of what they like. So yeah, that's a totally different way of working, which I really enjoy. It challenges you and pushes you. And I think the results are often more different. And I think it's so important as a designer to always push yourself to be original with each project that you're doing. And private clients really help with that because you're collaborating with someone else and their personal kind of quirks and passions. And um, That's very diplomatic. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas when you're working for a commercial client or a developer, which we often do as well, it's very freeing actually, because you are often just trusted to make the call yourself. So our commercial developer projects are where we kind of play and experiment and have fun and push our own boundaries as a studio. And then our private clients are almost where we kind of challenge ourselves to work with somebody else and the results are often really quite different to if we had just been able to charge ahead and do whatever we wanted and I think that's that's a really good balance. Absolutely and where do you find inspiration? You've said in the past that going to galleries and antiques markets and and exhibitions are a huge part of your creative process but over the last year with so much of that being kind of closed off to us what have you done? Did you dip in virtually or how did you keep the studio inspired? And Yeah, I did actually have, particularly last summer, I've recently kind of moved house. And so I was looking for stuff for myself, which is always a selfishly good motivator to try and hunt around for new things. Yeah. And as I think, you know, I've got this sort of connection to South Africa and that my mum is South African and I grew up there for a time and I particularly am drawn to contemporary African art and I've been trying to grow my own little collection, if you can call it that. So yeah, last summer, I really dove into that a bit more and had a bit of time to find some new artists and galleries and I've got some contacts over there. So discovered a lot through that process, which was really rewarding and it brought in this new flurry of options and artists and people we could work with into the studio. So it does tend to be me, I think, for the most part, who hunts out particularly the artists, the designers and the team are really brilliant at finding makers and suppliers of furniture and fabrics and lighting and all those things. But my particular passion is for the art. So it's something I spend quite a lot of my personal time doing and then really enjoy being able to introduce those people to our projects. And of course, you did a history of art degree, didn't you? Yeah. And then you did the summer course at Parsons. And then when you returned to the UK after that, what was the course then? So my first job was as a assistant or apprentice to Victoria Fairfax of Victoria Fairfax Interiors, which was a really amazing, steep learning curve. She kind of focused a little bit more on the classical, traditional type British homes, although she did have really extraordinary international projects as well. So I just followed her around and tried to make myself helpful for a couple of years. That was my first job. And um, she was a brilliant teacher and there were particular things that she was really good including um, she had this very particular sense of colour, really sensitive to colour. And we used to spend hours and hours, you know, whether it was choosing a pink colour and various shades of smoky blue or whatever it was, she was a real pro at that. So I really enjoyed my time with her. And then I went on to work for a company called Spring and Mercer again for a couple of years. Um, They were a kind of creative agency who were doing quite a lot of different things, whether it was branding, architecture, interior design, Mm -hmm. graphic design. And I joined as the sort of only interior designer of their little startup team at the time. And um, yeah, spent a couple of happy years there kind of growing the team and getting lots of more projects. And by the time I left, I think we were about seven or eight in the team. And yeah, I left because of that sort of golden ticket moment where a client who was a contact of my own for once 
wanted us to do a project for him and my bosses at the time didn't feel the budget was good enough, which I was livid about because I was desperate to bring in this client. Um, But with hindsight, I can see that that was a totally reasonable response and a business decision. And this client, who's now one of my very good friends, said, you know, if you decide to go out on your own, I could give you this project. Brilliant. And it was that simple, really. I was 25. I had nothing to lose. I had no responsibilities. Mm -hmm. I wasn't that scared of failure. You know, I thought I could just go crawling back to my boss or try and get another job somewhere if it all went sour. And um, luckily, it just was the right time and the right decision. And a few more projects came quite quickly after that. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of by accident Mm -hmm. um, and not at all planned. No business plan, no savings, no fallback option, just blind ignorance. (laughs) (laughs) So you probably know a little bit more about what you're doing now than you did then. A little bit, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm curious, what was the first interior space that really made an impression on you? Mm, Good question. I know that's kind of putting you on the spot there, but I'm curious about that and wondering if you still feel the same way about it. And that I guess that feeds into how interior designers might define their own style and how, you know, that journey of discovering what your tastes and your passions are Mm. when it comes to space. Yeah, I think I started to really open my eyes to interior design or the power of interiors when I was in my late teens. And at school, I had this friend whose mum was, she was an interior designer, but mainly just for herself, you know, doing her own houses. And they were extraordinarily wealthy and had houses all over the place. And um, every time I got to go to one of them, (laughs) and there really were that many, I just couldn't believe it. It was just like, unlike anything I'd seen before, she was so quirky and bohemian. And it was that time where it was all about kind of slightly Moroccan, shabby chic, really Mm -hmm. colourful interiors. And it was so new and fresh to me. And I just hadn't ever seen any spaces like that or anyone be so bold with colour and pattern and fabric and this sort of eclectic look that she had. And we went to... um, Morocco to Marrakesh and she had this little Riyadh which we were lucky enough to stay in. Oh wonderful. I just couldn't believe it. I just spent the whole weekend age 16 or whatever just staring at everything and Tadalak walls and all these things I'd just never ever seen or heard of before. So that sticks in my mind. Are you still in touch with that family? I'm not actually but I did see her son who was a friend of mine at the time at school. I did see him a few years ago and told him about the impact that his mum had had on me and I think I wrote his mum a letter once and told her about it. Did you? Yeah. But no, I grew up in Devon in my teens and I don't have any special memories of seeing any interior spaces which were particularly memorable, which sounds a bit harsh. But I think it was like going to the Tate Britain with my mum and kind of going to gallery spaces with her and stuff like that, where I really started to understand what this whole world was about and the kind of potential of how a space and a room can make you feel and what it could look like and be made of and made from. Definitely. And I suppose it's different now with Instagram and social media and Pinterest, being able to sort of have all those images and ideas at your fingertips and they weren't that around before. No, they weren't around then. And I remember having files on my computer, folders of images that I'd scanned in from magazines and trying to create a bit of a library of imagery in a very analog way. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, Pinterest and Instagram, none of that was around then. So it was a lot slower, my education, I think. I think the average 16, 17, 18 year old now probably is far more clued up than I ever could have been. 
I just didn't have that many. It was just magazines. It was magazines and books and yeah. real life experiences. That was it really. Yeah, definitely. Now, tell us about Sister, your new sort of, I mean, what would you call it? An e-commerce sort of part of your business? Yeah. Why now? And what is it? Tell us what it is. So Sister is a business that I set up last year. In addition to Studio Ashby, it's a sister company to Studio Ashby, hence the name and was also really kind of inspired by my younger sister in particular, Rose, who's a couple of years younger than me and has always just had this really wonderfully fresh, joyful, happy approach to life and a little bit more carefree than me. I don't know how she managed it. I, I was always a bit of an old fart and more mature than her and kind <laughs> of, um, as, as a 12-year-old upwards, I think I just took everything quite seriously. And she was the opposite. And she's my favorite person to hang out with because she's just so fun and can be silly and but is also extremely clever and successful and inspiring as well. So yeah, the company's called Sister because of her and because of all the wonderful women that inspire me and make me kind of feel like that. And what it is, is really a shoppable world of our studio Ashby interiors. So we're starting off really small. I mean, I'm the only kind of investor in this business. It's not like we've gone outside and raised a pot of cash and therefore I'm kind of doing it all very grassroots and slowly mm -hmm. and figuring stuff out as we go along. But I just have always been, I mean, I'm a shopaholic and a shopping, you know, <laughs> as an interior designer and as someone who's interested in fashion and stuff, the stuff of life. You're a collector. I'm a collector, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a much more sophisticated way of saying <laughs> I love shopping. Um, but I've always wanted a shop. And so for some crazy reason, decided to start that in the middle of a pandemic and a retail crisis. And um, But I think, I think the pandemic, a lot of that kind of thing happened during the pandemic, people having space to think and maybe pursue things that they didn't have time to otherwise. So a lot of good has come out of it in that way. Yeah, definitely. And so how does it work? It's a mix of vintage and refurbished pieces and new pieces. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. We're trying very hard not to just create stuff for the sake of it. And a lot of our soft furnishings and accessories, like cushions and throws and things like that, we're trying to reuse all of the waste from Studio Ashby. So a lot of the cushions, oh, right. okay. uh, or actually all of the cushions are made from scrap waste fabric from our projects. And obviously with antiques and refurbishing old things, we're not adding to the world. Yes. And then we have our bespoke made to order collection which is new stuff, but we're just at such good quality and the sort of investment pieces that we want to become like future heirlooms and something that you hang on to forever and is of the quality that can stand the test of time and be handed down. So we're experimenting in a few different areas and just seeing what works and what people want. It's really fun. And that was kind of the whole point of Sister, to just have a bit of fun. Has it been hard as well? Uh, yeah, it's a totally new business model, which yeah. I don't understand. And so <laughs> that seems to be your MO, Sophie. You just kind of jump <laughs> yeah. in, don't you? Yeah. I mean, I think if you surround yourself with clever people who know what they're doing, which has always been my plan, exactly. you can figure it all out and put your heads together. But also I think sometimes it's quite good to have a totally ignorant, fresh, new look on something because you're not brainwashed. I often think if I were to start my own business now, not sure I'd have the courage to do it knowing what I know. 
And so I do think that that kind of blissful ignorance is quite powerful as well, because you can kind of rethink the way that everyone else is doing something. If you don't know about that, you can look at the situation with a fresh pair of eyes and come up with a different strategy and solution. Definitely. And has the pandemic changed anything else about the way you work or the way you think about design or how you approach the idea of interiors or objects? I mean, I just feel so lucky that I happen to work in a little corner of the world in which people are focused on and are applying energy to, you know. I'm not in the fashion game. I'm not in the restaurant game. I'm an interior designer. And that is something that people have been really thinking about and focusing on in this last year. And so hence why we've grown a little bit, because we've never been busier and the inquiries, we've never had so many. And Is the nature of the inquiries a little different because home has to sort of be everything to everyone now? Or is it just reinforcing what was already there? There has been this kind of quiet revolution. And, you know, a lot of the press that I've read and interiors magazines and, and the newspapers on the weekends and stuff, there's so much talk about home and what you can do to improve your space. And obviously everyone suddenly needs a home office and everyone is obsessed with having outdoor space for obvious reasons. And so we're just getting a lot of inquiries from people who've suddenly got a bit of time and have focused themselves on those spaces. And it's the easiest thing to just put to the back of your mind or bottom of your list, you know, when you're just marching on with life in the way that we always have. So I think it's been great from that perspective. Definitely. Well, you have so much going on in the last year because also we need to talk about United in Design, which is the charity you launched last year with Alex Dolly of Dolly Design to sort of address the lack of diversity in the interior design industry. So tell us about those weeks and days when you decided to launch it. What were you thinking and feeling? What was going on? Uh, Like a lot of people, it was a really emotional, difficult time. And obviously it started with the, well, it hasn't, didn't start, but the, this whole movement was reignited by the murder of George Floyd. And I, like everybody else, watched in horror at that whole situation and tragedy. And in the following days, and it was that Blackout Tuesday, you know, I was really inspired and overwhelmed by something as simple as scrolling through my grid and just seeing nothing but black squares. Mm -hmm. And obviously did the same. And I just thought to myself, this isn't really enough. And I decided to just kind of take the day off which sounds really grand, but we were very busy at the time. And I just kind of really just took the day off and had decided to scrutinize my part in all of this and what I could be doing better as an employer, as a person, as a wife, as everything. And realized that we'd been doing almost nothing about it as a business. You know, we have struggled to hire diversely over the years, just not enough applications coming through from people of colour. And my attempts to rectify that have sort of ended there, you know, thinking if these people aren't applying, how can I hire them? I don't know where they are. I don't know what the problem is and just not really giving it enough thought. So took a good look at myself and made a plan for what I could do. I also released a statement on Instagram kind of acknowledging my own shortcomings and also the industries um, because, you know, you only have to look through the magazines and all the lists and have a look around at an event mm-hmm. or go to Chelsea Harbour Design Centre and the problem is really obvious. So I made this list of what we could do from kind of mentoring to schools outreach to apprenticeships 
to scrutinising our HR policies and how we recruit and things like that and started to have conversations as a result of the statement I put out. Lots of people wanted to talk and so I spoke to my peers but mostly I spoke to people of colour who had had an experience and wanted to share it with me. And so I spent those two weeks in the aftermath talking on Zoom to at least, I don't know, 20, 30 people and just kind of trying to figure out what the problem was and what was going on. And through that, I met Alex and she and I were just completely on the same page and were having the exact same reaction. And I say reaction in that we were both very focused on a solution, which is my nature and her nature, which is very proactive, busybody type people who once we'd got the gist of the problem, and it was different for me than it was for her because she is a black interior designer and so had her own personal experiences and stories to go on. And so we just combined and decided on a particular approach and solution. And it took the form of this list of seven things that you could, all businesses, any scale could attempt to do, at least half of them, if not all of them. What are those seven things? Is it okay if you go through them? Yeah. Um, so the first is kind of using your platform for good. So if you have a following, you know, making sure that you're promoting diverse um, suppliers, makers, talent, mm-hmm. artists, as well as making sure that if you're invited to be on a panel or things like that, that you try to push for diversity in all environments that you're put in thinking about HR and recruitment and making sure that you're sending out the right messages when you're hiring and you're not accidentally using words that exclude people or anything like that. Mentoring. So we have through United in Design now, we have paired about 50 people with mentees. So yeah, just giving people that really important opportunity to speak to someone who's a professional, more experienced than them in the industry and have that help and advice. It makes such a difference, doesn't it? It makes such a difference. Schools outreach, going into schools and talking to young kids in sort of GCSE or younger about interior design and the whole industry that we work in, because I think there's a lot of stigma around it being a bit of a airy-fairy creative career. And some families, you know, might feel like that's not really a safe reliable route to earn a living and so just kind of educating young kids about all the different roles and responsibilities and routes there are in and through our industry and yeah promoting it really is like actually quite a good business career as well as creative career. Then we have our apprenticeship scheme which is the kind of jewel in our crowns so we had five apprentices start this week um, their one-year apprenticeship placements And the idea is that they spend three months each at four different studios, making up a year's worth of experience, studios or suppliers or anything really. Are they mainly London-based studios? At the moment, they're London-based, yeah. So that was really an amazingly sort of tangible outcome that we can look at and to think that these young people have started jobs this week with the first part of the placement has just been really incredible. How did the apprentices connect with the studios? Was it an application process or? Yeah, so we held a competition in collaboration with Interior Educators, which is a really brilliant 
charity set up quite a long time ago. Graham Brooker set it up and he's one of our trustees. He runs the interiors program at the RCA as well. And he's an educator through and through and has spent his entire career teaching at the best universities in the UK. And Interior Educators essentially is a network that connects all the schools and universities and colleges who offer reputable interiors courses, of which, according to Interior Educators, there are 56 across the country. And so we sent out a competition. Uh, well, actually, you just had to apply. Sorry, it wasn't a competition. You just had to submit your portfolio and CV and a kind of letter of intent and statement. And all of the heads of programme at these 56 schools sent it out to their students, and then all of those students applied for the apprenticeship. So it's basically BA, MA graduates who applied. Mm -hmm. And we were completely blown away by the quality and standard of their applications and their portfolios. It was impossible to choose. So yeah, there's this, this whole raft of amazingly talented people who obviously have graduated in the middle of a pandemic and are trying to get jobs in the creative industry. And um, there's just more talent than you can you can think of. So it's really wonderful to have been able to give some of these people a really incredible opportunity. Absolutely. It's amazing what you've done. Was it scary to put yourself out there like that? It was really scary making the statement on Instagram. I was like crying for days and so scared that I'd be cancelled or written off or I don't know. I just, it was so raw and honest what I wrote. And, you know, I took counsel from my husband and my family and People were quite scared for me, I think. But at the same time, I just felt like I'd be such a fraud if I didn't say it and I didn't do it. So I did. And the reaction was actually pretty overwhelmingly positive. I think people appreciated the honesty, felt the same, or a lot of my peers felt the same. And that was the, that was the catalyst for change, really, because all of the messages and stuff that I got were from other interior designers yeah. saying, I feel exactly the same. I wish there was something that I could do. If you set anything up, let me know and I will definitely take part. And so now we've got over 150 businesses who have signed up to United in Design and are offering all of these opportunities to people. And that was the whole point, really. Alex and I had some conversations really early on with the bigger institutions who, in theory, govern or run our industry. And it was so disappointingly slow really, and like prehistoric, the responses, just in terms of what they were telling us in terms of timings and what they could hope to do and how they could hope to help and saying things like in eight months time, we've got a board meeting and we'll bring it up then. And I was, oh we were just like, no, this is not going to work. Oh, no. And so we just decided to put the businesses, entrepreneurs, people with businesses my size, smaller, bigger, at the front of change and center of change and that's, I think, how we've got so much momentum because, you know, there is no pyramid structure in my company. If I want to do something, I'll just do it because it's mine and I make those decisions. And that's been the power and success of United in Design, I think. We've got 150 odd businesses who are run by founders in the most part and have the authority and autonomy to just make a decision and get on with it. At the start, was there a steering committee or how did it, how did you kind of come up with the structure and the ideas for it? So it was Alex and I who kind of came up with the seven points and the idea that it was obvious pretty quickly that we needed to be a charity. Right. 
And, you know, we had absolutely no intention of making any profit or anything like that off what we were trying to do. We needed a steering committee of important people and like the movers and shakers of our industry and particularly some designers who run really big studios like Simon Rawlings of David Collins and Mm -hmm. Catherine Pooley and people like that, as well as crucially the buy-in from some of the publications and magazines. So Hatter from House and Garden, as well as David Nichols and Emily Tobin, tons of people from House and Garden. And then we've got Living, etc. and Homes and Gardens as well, all on our steering committee, as well as AD mm-hmm. US. And it was important to have their support because we needed their assistance in spreading the message, but also because we needed them to be part of this movement and try to make a change within what they do, i.e. magazines and press. And definitely, they've all been pretty extraordinary on that front. So yeah, the steering committee was a big part of it, particularly at the beginning and having these conversations and talking through what we were thinking we were going to do. And they've taken a bit of a backseat now because we're just, it's all about the administration. It's just a huge amount of work organizing everyone and everything and all of these partnerships and pairing mentors with mentees and all of that. So, Of course. And are you still doing a lot of that work in-house, you and Alex and your teams, or have you brought people in? We have an amazing administrator called Janet who runs everything and does everything. Um, And Alex is really, really hands-on as well. And I was very busy with it all up until recently. I'm due to have a baby quite soon. And so I've been um, winding down and trying to take a few things off my plate. So I'm taking a bit of a pause, but we'll be back as soon as I can. But Alex is amazing. She's such a doer oh my god she doesn't waste a second I thought I was fast and impatient I've met my match (laughs) yeah well I guess there's no time to waste no exactly something so important yeah listening to her speak about it she does seem like a force she absolutely is yeah well it's incredible what you've both done and so needed I think it's a good note to sort of sign off on I just wanted to say thanks for taking the time. I know that you're a busy lady (laughs) and I really appreciate you talking to us about all of this because it's so important. And like you say, we need to spread the word. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been so nice to talk to you. (laughs) 